chapters 11 and 12 of Problems in American Democracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Problems in American Democracy by Times Williamson. Chapter 11. Part B. Programs of Industrial Reform. Chapter 11. Single Tax. 104. Definitions. The words single tax refer to a policy under which all public revenue is to be raised by a single tax on land value. All other taxes are to be abolished. By land value is meant the value of the land itself, irrespective of all improvements, such as ditches, drains, and buildings. Everything done on the land to increase its value would be counted as an improvement and would thus be exempt from taxation. This would leave only location value and fertility to be taxed. By location value is meant that value which is due to the situation of the land. For example, land in a wilderness has little or no location value. But if later schools, stores, railroads, and other elements of community life develop in that region, the land may take on great value because of its location in the community. The fertility value of land is that value which is due to natural endowment in the way of moisture, climate, and soil elements. 105. Henry George and his work. The doctrine of a single tax is closely associated with the name of Henry George, an American reformer who died in 1897. His theory was best developed in his book, Progress and Poverty, published in 1879. In this book, George points out that in spite of the progress of the world, poverty persists. This is due, chiefly, he contends, to the fact that landowners take advantage of the scarcity of good land to exact unduly high prices for its use. According to George, this monopoly of the gifts of nature allows landowners to profit from the increase in the community's productiveness, but keeps down the wages of landless laborers. Thus, all the advantages gained by the march of progress, George writes, go to the landowner, and wages do not increase. George proposed to use the single tax as an engine of social reform, that is to say, to apply it with the primary view of leveling the inequalities of wealth. Value due to improvements was to be exempt from taxation, so that landowners might not be discouraged from making improvements on their land. On the other hand, it was proposed that the single tax take all of the income due to location and fertility. This, according to George, would, quote, render it impossible for any man to exact from others a price for the privilege of using those bounties of nature to which all men have an equal right, end quote. 106. Results claimed for the single tax. George claimed that the application of the single tax was highly desirable. If, through the medium of this tax, the government were to take from the landowners all the location and fertility value of their land, two great benefits were to result. First, rich landlords would be deprived of much unearned wealth. Second, the wealth so secured, called the unearned increment, could be used to make life easier for the poor. Ultimately, George went so far as to claim the single tax would, quote, 
raise wages, increase the earnings of capital, extirpate pauperism, abolish poverty, give remunerative employment to whoever wishes it, afford free scope to human powers, lessen crimes, elevate morals and taste and intelligence, purify government, and carry civilization to yet nobler heights. The steps by which George arrived at this gratifying conclusion are obscure, and practically every modern economist agrees that too much has been claimed for the theory. Nevertheless, there is much to be said on both sides of this interesting question. 107. Arguments for the Single Tax Single taxers claim that it is just to take from landowners that land value which is not due to their individual efforts. Fertility, on one hand, is due originally to the bounty of nature, and as such belongs to all men alike, rather than to particular individuals. Location value, on the other hand, is due to community growth, and should therefore be taken for the benefit of the community at large. A very strong argument in favor of the single tax is that land cannot be hidden from the tax assessor, as can stocks, bonds, jewels, and other forms of personal property. A single tax on land would, therefore, be relatively easy to apply. A tax on the location and fertility value of land would not discourage industry. Location value is largely or entirely due to community growth rather than to the efforts of the individual landowner. Fertility, of course, is largely a natural endowment, and as such cannot be destroyed by a tax. The land would continue to have all of its location value, and probably much of its fertility value, whether or not the owner were taxed. Another argument is that a single tax on land would eliminate taxes on livestock, buildings, and all other forms of property except land, and that this would encourage the development of the forms of property so exempted. This would stimulate business. It has also been said that the single tax would force into productive use land which is now being held for speculative purposes. It is claimed that many city tracts remain idle because the owners are holding them in hope of getting a higher price in the future. According to the single taxer, a heavy tax would offset this hope of gain and would force speculators either to put the land to a productive use or to sell it to someone who would so employ it. A last important argument in favor of the single tax is that it might force into productive work certain capable individuals who are now supported in idleness by land rents. Professor Carver has pointed out that if the single tax deprived such persons of their incomes, they would be forced to go to work, and thus the community would gain by an increase in the number of its productive workers. 108. Arguments against the single tax. The most important objection to the single tax is that the confiscation of land, or what amounts to the same thing, the confiscation of the income which land yields, is unjust. Pieces of land, Professor Seeger points out, have changed hands on the average dozens of times in the United States, and present owners have in most cases acquired them not as free gifts of nature, nor as grants from the government, but by paying for them, just as they have had to pay for other species of property. Where individuals have acquired land in good faith, 
and under the protection of a government which guarantees the institution of private property, the confiscation of land value would be demoralizing to the community and unfair to its land-owning citizens. Another difficulty lies in the ease with which value due to permanent improvements is confused with value due to location or fertility. Where money has been expended in draining land, removing stones, or applying fertilizer, it is hard to tell, after a few years, what part of the value of the land is due to improvements. The possibility of this confusion would cause some landowners to neglect to improve their land, or might even cause them to neglect to take steps to retain the original fertility. Thus, the single tax might result in the deterioration of land values. It is also objected that the single tax would provide an inelastic taxation system. This means that it would tend to bring in an equal amount of revenue each year, whereas the revenue needs of government vary from year to year. A good tax system will accommodate itself to the varying needs of the government, always meeting the expenses of government, but at the same time taking as little as possible from the people. Footnote. Some opponents of the single tax declare that the heaviest possible tax on land would yield only a fraction of the revenue needed to finance the government. Single taxers, however, maintain that the tax would yield more than enough revenue to meet public expenditures. The merits of this argument are uncertain. It is doubtful whether the single tax would force into productive use land now being held by speculators. Even though a heavy tax were laid upon such land, it would not be utilized unless there were an immediate use to which it could profitably be put. A last important argument against the single tax is that there are no good reasons for removing the tax burden from all except landowners. Land is only one form of wealth, and it is unfair not to tax individuals who hold property in some other form. Some land value is indeed unearned, but there are other forms of unearned wealth, as, for example, monopoly gains and inherited property. Taxes ought to be levied upon these forms of unearned wealth, as well as upon the unearned income from land. It is desirable, too, to levy at least a light tax upon the propertyless classes, in order to encourage them to feel an interest in and a sense of responsibility for the conduct of their government. 109. Service rendered by the single tax agitation. Economists are unanimous in agreeing that the single tax, as expounded by Henry George, is too drastic and special a reform to find wide favor. Nevertheless, the single taxers have performed a valuable service by emphasizing the fact that in many cases the income from land is largely or entirely unearned. It would be manifestly unjust to dispossess present-day landowners who have acquired land in good faith. On the other hand, most economists agree we ought to reform our tax system so as to take for the community a larger share of the future unearned increment of land values. As Professor Tossig has pointed out, no one has a vested right in the indefinite future. The taking of this future unearned increment is hardly necessary to add, would not constitute a single tax, but rather a heavy land tax. Many other taxes would continue to be levied. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 Profit Sharing and Cooperation A. Profit Sharing 
110. The Nature of Profit Sharing The essence of profit sharing is that the workmen in a given enterprise receive, in addition to the regular wages, a share in the profits which would ordinarily go entirely to the entrepreneur. The share going to the employees varies with the establishment, but generally from one quarter to three quarters of the profits are divided among them. Distribution is by various methods. The workmen may receive their share in cash at the end of the year. Sometimes the money is placed in a provident fund for the workmen as a body. In other cases, it is deposited in a savings bank to the account of the individual workmen. In still other cases, the workman's share is invested in the business for him, the workman thereafter receiving dividends on this invested capital. In every case, however, the division of profits among the individual laborers is on the basis of the wages received. That is to say, the higher the regular wage received by a workman, the larger will be his share of the profits set aside for distribution. Generally, too, only workmen who are steadily employed are allowed to share in the distribution of profits. 111. Limits of Profit Sharing Profit sharing was once considered a remedy for many of our industrial troubles, but it is now generally conceded that the plan is decidedly limited in scope. Profit sharing increases the income of the workmen involved, but for this very reason it is often bitterly opposed by the trade unions. The unions fear, of course, that the plan will make the workmen interested chiefly in the employees of their particular establishment, rather than in the workmen in the trade as a whole. The trade unions also maintain that profit-sharing is often administered in a patronizing manner, which is offensive to the self-respect of the workmen. To a large extent, the spread of profit-sharing depends upon the development of altruism among employers. But unfortunately, altruistic employers are rare, and the majority of entrepreneurs will not adopt the profit-sharing plan unless it promises to result in some distinct advantage to themselves. This attitude explains, in part, the failure of many profit-sharing experiments. Employers have sometimes tried out profit-sharing in the hope that it would prevent strikes and other labor troubles. In some cases, this expectation has been realized. In many other cases, serious labor troubles have continued. This continuance of labor troubles has rendered profit-sharing less attractive to certain types of employers. In certain cases, employers have experimented with profit-sharing in the hope that it would stimulate efficiency and economy on the part of the workmen. Sometimes the immediate effect of the adoption of the plan has been to make the workmen more efficient and more interested in their tasks. But, after the novelty of the scheme has worn off, they have generally fallen back into their former pace. In justice to the workmen, it should be noted here that in most enterprises, the conditions of the market and the employer's managerial ability have more influence upon profits than have the personal efforts of the individual workmen. Where workmen realize this, they tend to lose faith in their ability to influence the share accruing them under their profit-sharing plan. A last important reason why profit-sharing is limited in scope is that in many hazardous enterprises, such as mining, agriculture, fishing, or building construction, the refusal and inability of the workmen to share in possible losses prevent the adoption of the plan. A mining corporation, for example, may make large profits one year and lose heavily the second year. 
Profit sharing is here inadvisable, if not impossible. The distribution among the workmen of a large share of the profits accruing at the end of the first year might so deplete the financial reserves of the entrepreneur that he would be unable to meet the losses of the second year. B. Cooperation. 112. Relation of profit sharing to cooperation. Profit sharing permits the workmen to secure more than a regular wage from a given enterprise, without however, giving them any control over the management of the business. Cooperation goes a step farther and attempts to dispense with either a number of middlemen or with the managing employer or with both middlemen and employer. In the case of a profit-sharing scheme in which the share of the profits accruing to the workmen is invested in the business for them, ultimate control of the enterprise may come into the hands of the workmen through profit-sharing. In such a case, the plant might be conducted cooperatively. In practically every instance, however, cooperation does not grow out of profit sharing, but arises independently. 113. Essence of Cooperation The essence of cooperation is that a group of individuals undertake to perform for themselves those functions which are commonly carried on by the businessman. Cooperatives are often workmen, though not necessarily so. Under the cooperative plan, all of the profits of the enterprise are divided among the cooperators. On the other hand, the risks of the business must also be borne by them. Management of the enterprise is conducted partly by officers or committees serving without pay, and partly by paid agents. The general policies of the business are settled by the cooperators acting as a body. Cooperation seeks to exchange the centralized control of the businessman for the diffuse control of a group of cooperators. This arrangement, its advocates hope, will permit wealth and power to be distributed among more and more people, and especially among those classes that possess relatively little property. Let us inquire briefly into the four types of cooperation. 114. Consumers' Cooperation Consumers' cooperation, also known as distributive cooperation or cooperation in retail trade, is the most common form of cooperation. It is also probably the most successful form. In this form of cooperation, a number of individuals contribute their savings to a common fund, buy certain desired commodities at wholesale prices, and distribute these among themselves. Generally, the cooperative store sells to its members at the regular retail price, but at stated intervals throughout the year, the profits of the business are distributed among the cooperatives in proportion to the amount of their individual purchases. Thus, the difference between the wholesale and the retail price, minus the expense of conducting the store, goes to the cooperators instead of to a storekeeper or other middlemen. One of the best examples of consumers' cooperation is the Rockdale Society of Equitable Pioneers, established in England in 1844. This type of cooperation has also been remarkably successful in Germany, Belgium, and other continental countries. The idea was taken up in the United States about the middle of the 19th century, and at the present time, there are in this country about 2,000 cooperative stores, many of them doing a thriving business. These stores are located chiefly in New England, the North Central States, and the West, few being found in the South. 115. Cooperation in Credit Credit cooperation may take any one of a number of forms. 
In one of the best-known forms, a group of persons form a credit society by contributing a proportion of their personal savings to a common fund. On the strength of this capital, and of their own individual liability, they borrow more capital. The total amounts thus got together are then loaned to the members of the society at a specified rate of interest. This rate of interest is higher than at which the group had borrowed money from outside sources. Nevertheless, it is lower than the rate members would have to pay if they individually sought loans at a bank. This is the aim of cooperation in credit, to enable persons of small means to secure loans without paying the high rates which, as individuals, they would ordinarily have to meet, if, indeed, they as individuals could secure loans under any conditions. Credit cooperation has been most successful in Germany, particularly among artisans and small farmers. It has also attained considerable success among the small tradesmen and artisans of Italy. In the United States, cooperation in credit is less highly developed, but recently its influence has been slowly increasing. In many cases, it supplies the principal underlying building and loan associations in this country. 116. Cooperation in Marketing the cooperative principle has also been applied to the marketing of agricultural products. In Denmark, for example, it has been found that farmers can market their dairy products cooperatively and thus save for themselves much of the profit that would otherwise go to commission agents and other middlemen. A similar saving has been effected in Holland, Belgium, and, to some extent, in France. Of recent years, cooperation in marketing has become important in the United States, finding particular favor among the farmers of the Middle and Far West. At the present time, there are in this country more than 2,000 cooperative cheese factories and more than 3,000 cooperative creameries. There are also more than 1,000 societies for the cooperative marketing of fruit, as well as numerous livestock selling agencies. 117 cooperation in production. The three forms of cooperation which we have been considering seek to eliminate unnecessary middlemen from industry. In producers, cooperation, on the other hand, the attempt is made to get rid of the entrepreneur or managing employer. A group of workmen get together, subscribe or borrow the required capital, purchase tools, materials, and plant, and set up as producers. They seek markets for their product, direct the enterprise either as a group or through salaried agents, share the profits among themselves, and accept the risks of the enterprise. Cooperation in production has been tried repeatedly in the various countries of Europe, but without success. True producers' cooperative associations have also met with almost universal failure in the United States, though experiments have been made in a variety of industries and in nearly every part of the country. Formerly, the Minneapolis Coopers were a cooperative group which seemed destined to attain a considerable success in production, but this group has now abandoned the cooperative principle. The cooperative marketing of fruit, cheese, and other agricultural products is, of course, not true producers' cooperation, but rather the cooperative marketing of commodities produced by individual enterprisers. 118 backwardness of cooperation in the United States. In all forms of cooperation, progress has been much slower in this country than in Europe. There are several reasons for this. 
For one thing, American workmen move about to a greater extent than do European workmen, whereas cooperation succeeds best where the cooperators have a fixed residence and develop a strong sense of group solidarity. The fact that our population is made up of diverse racial types likewise checks the growth of the feeling of solidarity. An important reason for the backwardness of the cooperative movement in this country is that American workmen make rather than save money, whereas cooperation requires thrift and a willingness to practice small economies. Again, the efficiency and progressiveness of our industrial system renders cooperative ventures less necessary in this country than in some parts of Europe. It is particularly true that retail stores in the United States are more efficient than similar shops in England and on the continent. Altogether, the most successful cooperators in this country are not native-born Americans, but groups of Finns, Russians, Slovaks, and other peoples of immediately foreign derivation. It is among these groups that the thrift and group solidarity demanded by cooperation are best found. 119. Limits of Cooperation Consumers' cooperation, cooperation in credit, and cooperation in marketing all seek to improve the capitalistic system by eliminating some of the unnecessary middlemen from our industrial life. Insofar as this is true, these forms of cooperation are desirable developments and deserve to succeed. Though the movement is limited by the considerations set forth in the preceding section, it is to be hoped that these three forms of cooperation will in the future show a considerable development in this country. Producers' cooperation is a different affair. Rather than attempting to decrease the number of unnecessary middlemen, it attempts to supersede the entrepreneur or managing employer where he is most needed. For this reason, producers' cooperation will probably continue a failure. To run a modern business of any size at all requires a degree of intelligence, imagination, judgment, courage, and administrative ability, which is altogether too rare to be found among casual groups of laborers. Varied experience, high ability, the determination to accept the risk of the enterprise, and a consistent singleness of purpose are necessary in modern production. Even though cooperators are able to secure an amount of capital sufficient to initiate production, they rarely have the requisite ability or experience. Too often, they object to accepting the risks of the enterprise. Practically never can they administer the business with that unity of control which characterizes the most successful business enterprises. 120. Benefits of Cooperation while no longer considered a far-reaching industrial reform, the cooperative movement brings with it many benefits. Cooperation in retail trade, credit, and marketing cuts down the waste between consumer and producer and thus helps substantially to reduce the cost of living. Cooperation in production, though it fails to reach its chief objective, has the virtue of demonstrating to groups of workmen that the entrepreneur is of far more value in our industrial life than they might otherwise have realized. Aside from these advantages, cooperation in any form is an important educative force. It fosters the spirit of solidarity and mutual helpfulness among members of a group or community. It teaches thrift. It trains the cooperating individuals to exercise foresight and self-control. Altogether, the training which it affords is productive of good citizenship. End of chapter 12